Are you struggling with co-parenting your children with an alcoholic? What are your challenges and what tools have you found? Welcome to episode 342 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Zainab, Susan, A, Dominic, Nicole, Donna, and Kathleen. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Zainab, Susan, A, Dominic, McCall, Donna, and Kathleen for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in the show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During the show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I'm your host today. Joining me today are Lynn and Lindsay. Welcome to both of you. Say hi. Thanks, Spencer. Thanks for having us, Spencer. Oh, thanks for doing it. Did you find a reading you want to open with? I decided to pull out the detachment flyer, which was the very first piece of Al-Anon literature I ever read. And when someone handed it to me in my first Al-Anon meeting, I could barely make it through without crying. It just was so powerful. It said some things that I had never heard before and some concepts that were totally new. So it reads, detachment is neither kind nor unkind. It does not imply judgment or condemnation of the person or situation from which we are detaching. Separating ourselves from the adverse effects of another person's alcoholism can be a means of detaching. This does not necessarily require physical separation. Detachment can help us look at our situations realistically and objectively. Alcoholism is a family disease. Living with the effects of someone else's drinking is too devastating for most people to bear without help. In Al-Anon, we learn nothing we say or do can cause or stop someone else's drinking. We are not responsible for another person's disease or recovery from it. Detachment allows us to let go of our obsession with another's behavior and begin to lead happier and more manageable lives with dignity and rights, lives guided by a power greater than ourselves. We can still love the person without liking the behavior. In Al-Anon, we learn not to suffer because of the actions or reactions of another person, not to allow ourselves to be used or abused by others in the interest of another's recovery, not to do for others what they can do for themselves, not to manipulate situations so others will eat, go to bed, get up, pay bills, not drink, or behave as we see fit, not to cover up for another's mistakes or misdeeds, not to create a crisis, not to prevent a crisis if it is in the natural course of events. By focusing on ourselves, our attitudes and well-being improve. We allow the alcoholics in our lives to experience the consequences of their own actions. Thanks, Lynn. Could I ask each of you to briefly introduce yourself and why you chose to talk about this topic of co-parenting with an alcoholic today? Hey, I'm Lindsay. Really happy to be here. This topic of co-parenting, I would say, has been like the single greatest teacher for me in my Al-Anon journey. And I would say it's not even just co-parenting, but just parenting in general, like learning how to apply the principles and the ideas of the program to myself as a parent and choices and decisions I make for my children. And then also in 
my relationship with my current husband and my ex-husband who both suffer from the disease of alcoholism. My ex-husband is not in recovery and I have a 12-year-old daughter with him. And then my current husband is thankfully in recovery and doing really well. And I have a six-year-old daughter with him. Thank you, Lindsay. How about you, Lynn? Uh, yeah, co-parenting with an alcoholic is what brought me into the rooms of Alamon. I was in a crisis with my co-parent. We had already been divorced for three years, but some of the consequences of his behavior were starting to really affect me and, and affect my kids. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was an appropriate response. And I was spun up, spun in, spun, <laughs> spun every way possible trying to solve that problem and nothing was working. And I was just getting worse, more anxious, more depressed. I hadn't really dealt with the grief of the loss of the ideal family that I had hoped I would have, the quote, ideal parenting that I thought I was going to be able to provide for my children. But now four years into Al-Anon, I can see it all is really divine. You know, I feel like my higher power put my ex-husband in my life for many reasons. And one of the greatest gifts he's ever given me is the opportunity to pursue my own recovery. I used to talk a lot about my qualifier, my qualifier <laughs> did this and that when the right first got in. And now I recognize that I come from a long family of uh, dysfunctional alcoholics and codependents. And it's really important for me to do what I can do to heal myself. I am no longer trying to fix him or make him stop drinking or even try to prevent the chaos that might naturally occur because of the decisions that he makes. Because of Al-Anon, I have a lot of clarity on what is within my power and what I am powerless over. Thanks. As you were talking, I don't know why this didn't really come to me before, but I realized I also spent a decade co-parenting with an active alcoholic and another um, two decades almost co-parenting teenage and adult children with a recovering alcoholic, right? Have a little bit of I guess it's 15 years, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I was like, oh, I don't have anything to say on this topic. In fact, <laughs> oh, what was life. it like for you co-parenting with uh, a parent in active? <sighs> it's fuzzy. And I didn't have the excuse that I was drinking. I know that I was very angry. I know I've talked about this before. And that definitely came out on my kids. There is no question about that. There were undoubtedly times when they just didn't understand their mother's behavior. And I didn't really have an explanation for them. Oh, she's really tired or something like that. And I also worried about her driving them places when she'd been drinking and tried very hard to make that not happen. And then co-parenting and recovery, of course, she started to have opinions that I was supposed to listen to again. <laughs> what I don't have is the the experience of co-parenting with somebody who's not physically present. I think that there must be some extra challenges there that I hope we'll have a, a chance to dig into a little bit. I want to thank you guys for putting together some discussion questions that will help guide our conversation. This fits the structure of the way that we used to start out our, our conversations in the podcast, which is, what was it like before? What was it like co-parenting with an alcoholic before recovery? Lynn, why don't you start? All of the over-functioning, hyper-vigilance, all the M's, the mothering, the managing, the manipulation, the martyrdom. And I was trying to mother my co-parent too. 
And right. so I, I was a pretty young mom when I first had kids. My kids are uh, 13 and 10 now. Although my ex-husband is older than I am, I always treated him like a teenager. And I would try to set limits on him and control him and punish him and reward him and manage his money and count his cigarettes and count his beers and play good cop and bad cop. I tried every technique possible. What I imagine what a parent not in recovery would do with a teenager who had um, addiction issues. And it made both of us crazy. I felt totally helpless over it. But because I am a you know third generation codependent at this point, I was hell bent on fixing him. And I knew if I could just be patient enough, if I could just say it the right way, if I could just find his soft spot, the thing that would help motivate him to make better decisions for us, for me, for the kids, then everything would be okay. And that we would somehow magically have this happy life. Someone had mentioned to me that I should check out Al-Anon while I was still married. And I was just really convinced that none of it was my problem. I was drunk on self-righteousness and I was doing everything I could to live the most perfect life uh, so that everything could always be his problem and his fault. That finger pointing, I was always finger pointing. Not a day went by that I wasn't criticizing him and fretting about him. I just overfunctioned in every way at work with my friends, in my marriage, and to a certain extent with my kids, because I wanted to try to give them the best life that I could when they were little. Sometimes that meant parenting enough for the both of us. That led me to feeling like I was a single mom, even when we were married. Ultimately, even before I found program, I decided that was not a life that I wanted to live anymore. And so that's what led me to finally file for divorce. But we started our co-parenting journey without me being in recovery. And the first year was difficult, but it did get easier. And that's the first thing that I always start when I talk about my relationship with my ex is that we always started with a foundation of we want to be kind to each other and we want to have 50-50 everything. We didn't want to have to pay each other money. We didn't want to have to parent according to what the state thought our parenting schedule should be. And even though sometimes we fought about what exactly that looked like, For the most part, we always came back to this common truth, which was what's best for the kids. That I could see is my higher power working for me in ways that I now see as my higher power before I think I just thought it was luck. Yeah. So there was just a lot of misery and and that self-righteousness. First in my denial, I thought I was doing everything right. And I couldn't dare hold up that mirror and look at my own behaviors with not critical eye, but a compassionate curiosity of, well, what is, what am I doing that is contributing to this harm? How about you, Lindsay? Yeah, I can relate to all of that, especially the word misery. (laughs) (laughs) It was exhausting. I grew up in a very kind of volatile family situation. My parents got divorced when I was young. And my father suffers from alcoholism and my mother suffers from Al-Anonism and neither have found any recovery. So I was very comfortable, I would say, in recreating that environment in my current home. So it was almost like a hobby for me, sadly, because I have noticed that since I've got recovery now that, oh, all this space is open can actually have real healthy hobbies like knitting or cooking or gardening. It's like, well, no wonder I couldn't do that before because all I did was I made this my hobby. You know, it was managing the feelings and the choices of the person I was spending my life with and then my ex-husband as well at the same time, which 
I look back now and it was a bit of a blur and there was so much underlying anger and I didn't realize it at the time because it was all projected anger onto my ex-husband, onto my current husband um, and sadly onto my kids, like recreating the same patterns I had done. But underlying, it was all internal anger of my inability to make better decisions and to break the cycle and stop the chaos. And I remember having a friend who, when I was going through my divorce from my ex-husband, she invited me to come to Al-Anon and she was a dear, dear friend. And I went to quite a few meetings with her, but it just, the timing wasn't right. I wasn't open enough to see my part. But the good news is, is that later when my current husband went to a treatment program. Like I already knew about Al-Anon. So it was kind of like seeing an old friend again. When I walked into those rooms, I was finally farther enough along on my own journey to be ready and be open to trying something new. But I will tell you that for a long time, even going into those rooms, I was solely there to fix my current husband. <laughs> I was not there to just see my part. Was there a time before recovery where you had one child with your ex-husband and a child with your current husband? Yes, for about three years. Yeah. So I was trying to manage splitting time with a custody with my oldest daughter and managing my ex and knowing that he was drinking and making kind of scary decisions about he ended up having to like take him back to court over. So it was just so much stress and turmoil. And then trying to manage too the parenting I saw happening that wasn't up to my standards with my current husband that I now know he has so many times shown me that sometimes he does a better job of these things than I do, you know, and I don't always have the best ideas or the best way. Funny how that works, isn't it? Yep, it is. Sometimes they do have good ideas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't remember which one of you it was who said treating your husband like a child parenting your husband, but I know that there were times when I felt like I was doing that with my wife, that I had to be the parent of, of all three. You talked about where your anger was coming from, I think, and I definitely did not have any clarity about where it was coming from. It was just there. So I wonder, is that something that you recognized at the time or is it something that came to you later as you looked back? I recognized small parts of it at the time. And that's because I had started going to therapy because my life was in chaos enough that I knew I needed help. So in therapy, I started to recognize some of those patterns that I had gone through as a child that I was kind mm. of recreating. Mm. But um, still, I would say most of the blame you know, I was putting on my husband's part in it and his decisions that he was making and, and not looking in the lens enough. I think that therapy is amazing, but my healing and growth really accelerated when I started coming to Al-Anon because I had a therapist to help me along the way with my own kind of internal work. But really, Al-Anon did a much better job for me of showing me in my face, holding that mirror in front of me and saying, look at what you're doing. How is this about you and what can you do differently going forward? So mm -hmm. that's when things really picked up for me. I can really identify with that, Lindsay. I was in therapy for the last year or so of my marriage, and it was just a lot of talking about my qualifier. And I really wish that that special worker 
would have suggested Al-Anon because I think that the codependency signs were just everywhere. And even the word codependency had not popped up and I didn't understand it. You know, I thought he was the codependent one. I thought I was so independent. So it was some tough medicine when I got into program and I was first allowed to think about in what ways am I denying him the dignity to be his own person? And how does that hurt him? And also how does that hurt me? And ultimately also how does that hurt the kids when I model that behavior to them? And how do I, I don't want to deny them the dignity to be the the people that they're going to be. But that's where the ripple effect of the program comes in. When I got out of his way and I started to get out of my kid's way, I was more able to focus on myself and my needs and learn how to set boundaries. Now, I, I didn't know the difference between trying to control somebody else and setting a healthy boundary. And even now that question of how do you speak up about unacceptable behavior? What's an appropriate way to say, this isn't working for me. And I know that for a lot of parents, that's tricky when kids are involved and there's custody arrangements and there's different philosophies about parenting. I mean, I can speak to, we have two different households that the kids are in. And in some ways there are different rules in each house. There are different political opinions in each house. I've had to get really clear about if it's a safety issue, if it's a comfort issue, if it's a chaos, nothing in Al-Anon tells me that I need to intervene when my kids are experiencing a chaotic or sad situation or even a difficult situation. If their health and their safety is at risk and thankfully he doesn't really drive and he doesn't really drive with them while drinking. And he's also not an angry, throw things against the wall kind of drunk. He had had some people in his life that I think were creating some legitimately unsafe situations for them. And that was when I first got into Al-Anon and first not got permission to, but I understood that I did have a responsibility to my kids to make sure their physical safety was protected. And I put up a boundary and still said, I would be happy to maintain you seeing them, but you're going to have to do it at my house. And I, and that was the consequence of his behavior too. I, you know, I think I had um, not allowed him to face the consequences of his behavior for a long time, but also I'm not, I'm not his higher power. Again, it goes back to that. I can't put him in timeout and I have to really think carefully and respond and not react when something gets under my skin or sometimes like a school issue will come up and I want him to step up and help out with the homework or help out with the virtual schooling in a way. And I have to let go of my expectations that he's going to do it perfectly and, Mm -hmm. uh, and allow him the dignity to figure it out. Because if I jump in and do it and overmanage him, he's never going to learn. And the kids are learning greater lessons about what love really means, what unconditional love really me- means when I have the hands off and the heart on. Hands off, heart on. Yeah, and they're also allowed, I think, to see more of individually who you are as a person and a parent when we aren't trying to interfere with how the other person does things. You know, I think about that a lot. Like the moment I step in and try to manage something that's happening with my ex-husband, like I'm giving him the opportunity to get mad at me about managing it. And not just give my daughter the opportunity to have that interaction where she's taking some accountability and saying, dad, I really want you to do this thing with me. Instead of me stepping in and trying to make it happen, she's allowed to have that interaction. And maybe it doesn't go as planned. You know, maybe he lets her down, but I wasn't involved at all. That was their relationship that I could stay out of and that she could really learn a lesson, or maybe it turns out great. And she has this beautiful moment with her dad and I'm not involved at all. And and there's just so much beauty and peace in that. 
Oh, I just want to echo that. Lindsay, you really said something. There is a really beautiful thing that happens when I'm not there, that they have their own relationship. And this is when I think about faith, this is what really, you know, I can see God in my mind when they're at his house. I just imagine them all curled up on the couch watching a movie together and him cooking food for them and him, him dadding with them in the way that he dads. And it is a beautiful thing. And he might not be great at a lot of things, but he's really good at showing them love. With me out of the way, they get to really fully be in that. And what a gift. When I focus on that rather than the nitpicking and the criticism and the nagging, when I when I lead with that gratitude, everything else just really flows. Letting go of the expectations too, right? Like that, you know, we have in our head how we, we see our parenting, but having expectation put on our our co-parent, it isn't fair, you know, and it's robbing our children of really seeing their parent in an authentic, true way that they really are. Lynn, I loved the example of the boundary that you talked about there. And I I just want to come back to that for a moment, because it is such a tricky thing to actually set boundaries rather than control. And to say, I don't feel my children are safe at your place, I would like you to see them here rather than there for their own safety. I think there there just are other ways that could have gone, right? <laughs> that it didn't. I actually find myself, it's me setting boundaries with myself mm-hmm. around my expectations of him. And again, the nagging, you know, texting, saying it once, saying, hey, there's this thing that you need to pick up at school for the kids. And here are the the three days that it's available for you to go pick that up. And now my oldest and I, he's starting to understand codependency and he's starting to understand how he does have an obligation to speak up for himself, but to how to do so in a healthy way. We were just talking about this. And I said, look, if, if your dad is not able to go pick up these supplies at school on these three days, know that I will ultimately be the safety net that will make sure that you get this. But We need to allow him the opportunity to follow through with this and we'll see what happens. And the pickup even got delayed. So then I ended up picking it up anyway, but it was a good opportunity to practice these principles in all our affairs. Say it once, say say what you mean without being mean, detaching from the outcome, even using the three A's, you know, we're aware that something needs to get done. We accept that it's a little unsure about who's going to actually do it. And then have faith that it will happen in the way that it's supposed to happen. And how important is it? Look, if we don't pick up the packet by the deadline, you know, and that's like a low stakes example. But I feel like these small low stakes boundaries and improved communication styles mean that when there's big issues that happen, we already have these muscles. And my ex and I have a well-trotted path now of respecting each other not overreacting, you know, every once in a while I'll hear about a a particularly intense conversation that they've had at the dinner table and I'll pray about it. And if I decide that I need to say something, because maybe the kids aren't feeling emotionally safe, I I might say something, but I will say it in a, a, not a you kind of way, but just in a, Hey, you know, the kids expressed that they didn't feel super comfortable the other night when you all were talking about news issue or a political issue or something and just be mindful of that if you can you know just it's it's a soft way to do it rather than a you jerk I can't believe you're doing that again (laughs) which is how I would have said it before I still have trouble with that one I like this question here how did your family change when you found recovery in a new way of living I would say that the the biggest change 
that we've experienced is just a lot more harmony. I didn't have a lot of serenity in my house at all prior to my, you know, really experiencing the beauty of Al-Anon and then also my husband going to treatment and finding his way as well. It was a lot of chaos. And even in my early days of recovery, like it was still really messy. You know, the fighting would still happen. And I was learning to use those tools of detachment, which for me at the time maybe meant just dropping the rope and walking away, you know, recognizing my my part in arguments. For me, prior to recovery, I was one of those people who had learned early on in life that like you should never go to bed angry, which is a horrible, horrible thing for me to learn because I would insist on having closure. And even if it was at 2 a.m. and literally my husband was just saying, yeah, you're right, just so he can go to bed. I was so stubborn and vigilant and having closure to some argument. Just learning that I don't have to have that, that I can just go to bed because I'm definitely tired and I'm definitely angry and probably feeling lonely inside. Maybe hungry too if it's 2 a.m., right? Like I just need to go to sleep. Chances are I'm going to wake up the next day and I might not even remember what we were fighting about because it wasn't even that important anyways, you know. Just those baby steps I began to take of walking away, dropping the rope. Or someone said to me early in program, they're like, well, if he's saying it to you, he's really saying it to himself internally. And having that perspective shift of, oh, wow, he's got anger. He's got sadness too. You know, he's struggling. He's fighting. And the words that are coming towards me maybe aren't even meant for me. Maybe they're meant for himself inside and, and tapping into that empathy a bit. Man, that wasn't always pretty. It wasn't linear. I definitely had steps. You know, gradually I got to this place where we just really don't have fights anymore. And if we do, they're small and we can be respectful to one another. And definitely within a couple of hours, like everything feels good again. I'm not spending for days obsessing about things and going down the rabbit hole, right? Where I can't even function and get anything done because all I can think about is this thing that happened that really isn't, it's not that important, right? Yeah. I think I can actually talk to this question. I came into Al-Anon, what, 2002. My wife found her current long-term sobriety in 2005, so... I I have the before after while the drinking still happening that I can look at. And she did have about eight months of sobriety near the beginning of that period. And I think that helped me because I didn't have to be focusing on her drinking at the same time as I was trying to figure out what this Al-Anon thing was about. And actually for three months of that, three or four months of that, she was in a residential treatment, which is a whole separate issue. And when it was time for her to come home, that was like really scary because I didn't know, I didn't know what it was going to, I knew what it had been like, which was horrible, chaotic, anger filled. And I knew what it was like with her gone. And sometimes I say this in a meeting, she went off to treatment. I had two 11-year-old children, I was driving across the state once a week to go to the friends and family program. And my life was so much easier than it had been before she left, which speaks to the parenting three people. And I was only parenting two people. What I know is 
The first real gift this program gave me was removal of the rage. And I can't really say how that happened, but it did happen. I think part of it, having just having a place where I wasn't alone anymore and where I could talk about things, I think that that helped. But I think that the program, I think that my higher power was working in me through working the program. So that was huge because that really changed the dynamic of the family. I wasn't screaming and pounding on the table probably nearly as much anyway. I don't think it all went away instantaneously. That's a little harder for me to see at this point. Secondly, letting go. As it says in one of the readings, I think in How Eleanor Works Somewhere, it talks about letting go of the need to control the drinking. The first slogan that I picked up was the first two words out of let go and let God, was just let go. I put that on my phone. So every time I opened my phone, it said let go. And I practiced that. I practiced that on the really hard thing, which was my loved ones drinking before I started to practice it on other things in my life, because that was where I needed to practice it. And so home life got better. It got less chaotic. It was definitely less yelling. It took me a while to really learn how to drop the rope gracefully rather than with a slamming door. <laughs> that was one of my things to do is go away and slam the door, you know, to just be able to walk away quietly, trying to resolve arguments. How important is it was a really good slogan for me there. Because this is my impression. I'm sure it's wrong because you always remember the, you know, the bad thing. My my impression is that when she was drinking, I never won an argument. I don't think that's actually true, but that's what it felt like. And so being able to understand that, as you said, that it it's not important to win when you can't made a big difference. It really did. And when she got to the point where she was near her bottom, the tools that I had learned over the previous three years really let me, enabled me to let go of what the outcome was going to be. But to be there when she asked for help. And the kids come into that because I wasn't spending as much time trying to manage her. I wasn't spending as much time being angry I think I was a better father because I, I had the time and I had the energy and I had the internal balance to be able to, to treat them as they were. And I'm trying to think, in 2005, they were going into their sophomore year of high school. And after, then, as I said, she started participating as a parent again, and that was a whole new learning curve for me. I want to just comment on that, dropping the rope. I mean, it's really hard to parent when you are engaged in a tug of war with your co-parent all the time. You know, I feel like not only is that no way to live as a human, it's no way to live as a kid. But learning how to drop the rope means learning how to tolerate different ideas, tolerate disagreements, and knowing what is the difference between really, truly unacceptable behavior or just things you don't like. 
And there are a lot of things that I don't like necessarily about how my co-parent, you know, he smokes in his car and his car smells like smoke. And I don't like it that the kids have to travel in a car like that. But you know what? That is not unacceptable behavior. Now, if he's smoking in the car, that's another issue. But I don't go that one step further. And even, you know, if the kids speak up to me and say, hey, dad's smoking in the car and I don't like it then we'll have a family discussion about that. But this, you know, I, I got to stay out of that hypervigilance for the ways that he's screwing up. Yeah. For me, I was thinking about how I learned the lessons of kindness being more important than being right. in in these rooms, I, I never learned that growing up because what was modeled to me, the behavior that was modeled to me is fight until the death <laughs> and whoever gets the last word in wins because the other person has given up and, never a conversation around kindness. And man, was that eye-opening for mm. me. And, and that makes me think of the, the THINK acronym. I can't ever remember all of the letters of THINK, but necessary and kind and important. Like how important is it to bring something up or to fight about something? Sometimes it's better to just walk away and let it go. You know, man, I've gotten really good at recognizing those little things that I can just walk away from. I think about that now is that's how we truly show love to our, our people around. And I think I mentioned this uh, maybe in the last episode I did with Spencer, but that love for me means letting others voluntarily fall. And I can say deeply and truly that I love my ex-husband and I love my qualifier and I love my kid's dad. And what that means is I let him be who he is and anything I give him has to be for fun and for free. I can't be given advice because I think he's going to follow it. I can't be doing him favors because I think he's going to return the favor because of the fluidity of the custody thing. If he needs me to take the kids early or something, I can only do that if I can do it for fun and for free. I think you both have talked to this some. How is your relationship now with your co-parent? I will say that learning to live as a couple who are both trying to practice recovery has been an interesting journey, but we do have at least a common language and we have a common set of principles and we can say, you know, this morning when I was really cranky with you, that was wrong. This is what was going on with me. I was tired and hungry and, or I was feeling very anxious about something. And when you sent me that text, it, it just really jarred me. And so I responded in, in a cranky tone of voice when you called, we can have that. We also are recognized. Okay. We've been together for 40 years. Okay. We met in 1980 in the fall of 1980. We're still learning things about each other. I think recovery has, has made that maybe more possible that the picture that we have of each other in our heads is not static anymore. Not what it was in 1980 for sure, but Recognizing each other's areas of strength and each other's areas where we're not so good. My wife is much better at dealing with our kid who has now very different political views than we do, than I am. The other day when the conversation in text exploded, and I have that particular text conversation muted so I don't get alerted as it's happening. I just see it after the fact. I got that clenchy feeling in the pit of my stomach for the rest of the day because 
I don't want my child to be the person that I see in that conversation. I don't want them to be saying the things that they're saying. And she's able to take it past that point and find points of common ground. I'm not so good at that. And I'm really glad that she is because it enables us to continue to have a loving relationship with that child. Doesn't hurt that the kid's a thousand miles away. But on the other hand, it doesn't help because it's a lot harder to have a deep conversation by text for sure, or even by phone, but they manage. So this um, makes me think about, I think, which is one of our next questions of how do you talk to your kids about Al-Anon or the family disease Mm -hmm. of addiction? And one way that it really flares up in our family is my ex will spout off on social media about things. And I I can read between the lines and they're posted at 1130 PM. And I know what he's like at 1130 PM. Sometimes he'll take them down, but sometimes he won't. And sometimes it becomes something, you know, his friends will reach out to me and say, is he okay? And I have to just let him do his thing. But it does lead to, it's an opening for a conversation with our kids about having compassion for people who maybe are hurting and are struggling. We've had lots of conversations about, not about his his drinking, but just about what his life was like when he was a kid and that there's a lot of pain that he he hasn't really been able to process and it has allowed them to, I think, be their dad with a more compassionate heart that, you know, we all make mistakes. That's the other thing too, is like emphasizing that we are imperfect parents and we're doing the best that we can. And so when something comes up like that, I'm, I try to let it begin with me and model that dialogue of, well, your dad is really frustrated about something right now. And, and kind of observe it without judgment. That's a really key part of my program is recognizing when I slip away from observation into judgment, but reminding myself that observation is really important and helping the kids to sort of be able to observe his behavior with that, with that softness and non-judgmentalness. I do know that I'm an Al-Anon. They know a little bit about what it is. Sometimes they have questions about it. I, I never tie it to because of your dad. It really is always about this is because I have grown up in a family where alcoholism has been present and I will let them make their own decisions about whether or not their dad is an alcoholic or a nicotine addict. He, I think has been open with them that he did go to recover drug addiction program in his twenties before we even met. He has experienced recovery in a different way. Sometimes I actually do see hints of that because as I have re- my own recovery journey, he seems to be getting better in some ways as well, even though he's not actively working in a program. So I'm always trying to like shine the spotlight on all the good ways that we interact rather than sort of reminding the kids that we have had difficulties or the problems that we had when we were married. You know, it's like, what, what's the strength, hope and experience that we are having now? Cause I don't want to shield them from recovery. I think it's important for them to know what a big part of my life it is and that we're living that in our family. Yeah. I was thinking about the age appropriate conversations, right. And just how age plays a big role in this. Like with my six-year-old, when she was three was when my husband went to his treatment program. And so after a while, she started noticing that I was going to these meetings and maybe she would have a sitter because my husband also travels a lot for work. Not right now, but he, he was. And, you know, I would just tell her that 
well, I'm going to go see my friends so that I can be the best mom I can be for you. That was how I talked to her about it. And now she just knows, like, I have my home meeting. Oh, Monday night's at, at 7. Mommy's got her meeting. She usually comes out in a pretty good mood. So, hey, can't be bad, right? With my ex and my older daughter, sadly, I've had to do some amends there because she definitely was very aware that I had a lot of anger towards him. Like, as much as I didn't want to make it known, I did. She could pick up on the resentment and the anger in my voice when I would talk about him. I was too open about my frustrations at times. That has been a real point of growth for me in that I have, at first, I just to learn to keep my mouth shut. And it's like, if I didn't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. And now I can actually really see the things he's really good at. And I think she is seeing more of a loving, respectful relationship grow. We are amicable now. And I think that's because I'm doing well. But one thing I wanted to touch on in regards to what another piece that's non-Alanon or not conference approved literature is the concept of BIF, B-I-F-F, being brief, informative, friendly, and firm in my communications with him. I used to definitely use too many words explain things too much and get way too analytical in my conversations with him or communications with him. But since I've learned that actually from my attorney, I have really found so much more peace because I'm not spending as much time communicating. I'm getting the job done, letting him know what I need, setting that boundary and being firm, but also being friendly. Things have been really a lot better since I started doing that. So brief, informative, friendly, and firm. Okay. Yeah. I've heard a couple other Sayings that that are sort of like that. There's say what you mean, mean what you say, and don't say it mean. And be brief, be honest, be gone. Which is the say it once kind of thing. I like that. Brief, informative, friendly, and firm. Biff. I should find out who the author is for that book so that we can leave it for people. There's a book. Okay. Yes. Ah, A whole book. That probably is really helpful. Yeah. (laughs) When everything hit the fan in 2002, I ended up in Al-Anon. My wife was in her first inpatient, which was one of those short ones that got cut short by insurance. It was like five days or something. And I went to my first Al-Anon meeting, and then she went into this residential program a month or so later. One of the days that I went for friends and family, they had a therapist who's, who would talk to the kids. So we brought the kids. They were 11. As I said, I have twins. I think they were very resistant to being there. One of them was a socially anxious person. And I, what I heard was that this kid spent most of the time hiding behind the beanbags in the corner of the therapist's office. We tried to give them some education and, and hopefully what they got in that room was age appropriate, but I don't know. You got to trust the that trust the therapist, right? And then I decided maybe they should go to Alateen. I bribed them to go to Alateen. Five bucks a meeting when you're 11 years old and and it's five bucks is a lot of money. You know, it buys a bunch of Pokemon cards or whatever. I think they went to three meetings. But what I don't really know is like, what did they think of me going to meetings? Because we didn't really talk about it. I have to ask them. Like, <laughs> you know, like, what did you think that when I was going to these meetings? And their mother has obviously talked to them about alcoholism and addiction. Part of that was in the cautionary, you know, this is inheritable. 
And so you should watch out. Mm-hmm. That kind of conversation, I don't know how much that helps or not. I do know that, that my one kid, when they decided to do something mind-altering when they were 18, chose LSD because, quote, it's not addictive. I, uh, I got told a lot whenever I was a kid, be careful about alcohol because it can be passed down in the family. But nobody ever said codependency could be passed down. That's one of the ways that I really try to um, not shy away from. One of the reasons why, particularly with my older, I do use that word. And I know it's a controversial word in the Al-Anon world, but for me, it really summarizes what we're talking about. So we can name it and do what we can to, what I can to heal myself and then pray that they are going to be in the care of their higher power as well. Hey, before we wrap this segment, I really want to talk about the traditions really quickly. I think there's so much wisdom there, especially as it pertains to how we deal with other people. What are the traditions that stand out for you, Lindsay, when you think about co-parenting? I picked a couple, but I think I'll focus on tradition six. Our Al-Anon family groups lot never endorse finance or lend our name to any outside enterprise less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. Although a separate entity, we should always cooperate with Alcoholics Anonymous. So the phrase that sticks out for me here is, Less problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary spiritual aim. So, yeah, that like hits the nail on the head there that really this is a spiritual program and parenting is a spiritual journey. You know, we're walking hand in hand with our kids as they become who they're meant to be. And let any kind of arguments over money, which could be child support, right? Or just like paying a fair share. Um, property and prestige. I, I think about, you know, those kind of tangible things that you again have to kind of practice that concept of like, how important is it really? When is it important enough that I should choose to have a conversation or in kind of equal work done in regards to the parenting, choosing our battles and recognizing that sometimes what it comes down to is like, maybe if I really want it done a particular way, or I really want this thing for my kid, like that's on me and I needed to go take care of that thing. Um, And it's not necessarily something I should expect my ex-husband or my current husband to like care about as much because they have their own things, right? I don't call us a broken family. I call us a co-parenting family. But a lot of parents on this journey, custody becomes a thing that really diverts everyone from the primary spiritual aim of what's best for the kids. I just really encourage people to, to have an open heart about what that looks like in your family and, and that it will change. Uh, you know, I think as kids get older, their needs change as parenting situations evolve, you know, going with the flow. It's really important. Absolutely. And especially as they get older and they have their own needs and wants that become really important to them, you know, that's when we have to really learn to be flexible. Well, and the, the last part of that tradition is so great that we should always cooperate with Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, absolutely. And that's difficult because I think there's the idea of like having good boundaries with the qualifiers in your life, the alcoholics in your life, but foundationally of um, appreciating what everybody brings to the table. I also think about tradition five, which says each Al-Anon family group has but one purpose to help families of alcoholics. We do this by practicing the 12 steps of AA ourselves, by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives, and by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics. So this Tradition tells me that I need to stay in my program and not take anybody else's inventory and that it's really important for me to work the steps. And that probably, you know, 
has included for me making amends to my ex-husband. And then the second part is by encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives. That doesn't mean giving them a pass for everything. It doesn't mean tolerating unacceptable behavior. It doesn't mean being a doormat, but it does mean for me just that encouragement, having those kind words, having compassion, trying to put myself in his shoes without all of that judgment that previously I brought to our relationship. And then the last part by welcoming and giving comfort to families of alcoholics you know, my kids, no matter what I do, my kids are going to be children of an alcoholic. And that means it's really important for me to welcome them with open arms, however they are, and give them comfort when they maybe are struggling and maybe having an outburst. You know, they don't have a program yet. I'm, I'm trying to give them these tools, but it's up to them whether or not they take them and implement them into their lives. So if I'm short with them and I Um, snip at them or I get outside of my program in relationship with them, I'm violating that tradition. I love that. And giving comfort, especially like this really rang true for me because I think about six months ago, my 12 year old came to me and she started talking about her dad's disease and we had not really had conversations about it. Again, because I've been just trying to focus on the great things I see in him. I haven't talked to her obviously about all the pain from the past, right? And I really don't know what his current situation is with his disease, but she started coming and sharing things with me. And I was able to like really talk to her and share enough knowledge about what I know and how there's still a lot of good there and there's hope for her dad and also her part in it as well. Like beginning to have those conversations about what codependency is and how she can't fix it and she can't control it, you know, because she's already, I can tell she's trying to. So giving her that comfort, just that, hey, I'm not going to judge your dad. Can please continue to come talk to me. I'm not going to talk to your dad about this. I can share that comfort with you. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of these principles that they can have a safe space to talk. And then the first tradition is always so beautiful. Our common welfare should come first. Personal progress for the greatest number depends upon unity. My ex and I have a common purpose and a common welfare, and it's really important to find common ground with him. Even if I want to fight and kick and scream about a little issue, I have to remember that uh, personal progress for all of us depends on us finding a way to work together. And that's Mm -hmm. the kids, that's his family, that's our friends. Everything you guys said. Yay, tradition work. That's my one message for the Recovery Show audience. Yeah. Don't, don't sleep on that tradition work. Find a small group of people and go through one of the workbooks and, and go through those traditions slowly and soak up every word of them because there's a lot of yeah. wisdom in those. And, and if I can just throw a plug for literature, the book Reaching for Personal Freedom. It's a workbook. It has readings and questions on each of the steps traditions and the concepts of service, which most meetings don't talk about at all because it's just so abstract for many people and so far, apparently far removed from a problem we came in with. I was so lucky. That was my very first home group. I, I joined about halfway through personal freedom, maybe three or something. And then we finished out the concepts a couple of years later, but that's a gift of Zoom meetings, right? Yeah. yeah. Start a little small group and work through those. What I really like about that book, when we're talking about how you use the traditions in your family, is that it focuses on using the three legacies, the steps, traditions, and concepts in your personal life. Even though the traditions are supposed to be about how the groups work and the concepts of service are about how Al-Anon as a greater organization work, 
there are many ways in which we can pull those into our personal lives. And so I recommend that as a way for people who maybe want to, they're, they're not sure about their traditions. They just seem not applicable and, and pick up that book and start reading the, the readings and the questions. And I think for me, it just pulls it in. You know, there's this sharing about family money issues and probably under tradition seven or something or tradition six, right? Oh, this is an outside issue. How my daughter chooses to, what apartment she chooses to rent is not my issue, especially if she doesn't ask me. <laughs> so the the traditions are just, yes, they're wonderful. And I think for me, the core of it is what's in traditions five and six about our, our purpose. When I was younger in the program, I would have an idea about something I wanted to do. And I would call up an, a program friend. And very often the question would be, what's your motive? I'm not sure if I should do this or not. Well, what's your motive? Why do you want to do? Oh, I want to do this because it'll make me feel better. Okay, maybe I shouldn't do it. It's not going to help the other person. They didn't ask for it. No, I'm I'm doing it to make me feel better. Okay. And I think that when we get into the traditions, when we get into family and work, for God's sake, remembering what our purpose is helps me to recognize whether this is a place that I need to stand up or a place that I need to sit down. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm going to be thinking about that sit down and stand up. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll uh, continue with our lives in recovery after a break, but first we're going to talk about some music. Our first musical selection, which you can listen to on the website at the recovery.show slash 342 is hope the high road by Jason Isbell. I just love this song mainly because I like how it sounds. But when I start to really listen to the lyrics, I hear some recovery. Jason Isbell is pretty prominently in the recovery community. And I know that it probably informs his lyrics. So the first part, I used to think that this was my town. What a stupid thing to think. I hear you're fighting off a breakdown. I myself am on the brink. I used to want to be a real man. I don't know what that even means. That was what it was like for me before program thinking that I was the mayor and the boss and the fixer who could save the world. And now I look back and think how silly. The second part of the song says, I know you're tired and you ain't sleeping well, uninspired and likely mad as hell. I lived that before I found Al-Anon. But in the chorus, he gets to the point about staying on the high road. I ain't fighting with you down in a ditch. I'll meet you here up on the high road. That is such a powerful reminder that I'm not going to sink down to whatever level that people want me to engage in a fight or particularly right now, there's a lot of tension in the air and I really want to stay up in the high road. And Al-Anon has shown me that there's another way to live. And that's the path that I want to stay on every day. I can ask myself, am I making this decision with my high eye or my low eye? Is this the high road or is this the low road? The last of the song says, but wherever you are, I hope the high road leads you home again to a world you want to live in. Uh, And that's affirmation that there's a ripple effect when enough of us stay on the high road, we can create a better world for all of us. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery in the past week or so? I've been on a very irregular schedule with the podcast. It used to be like, oh, yes, this week I did this. But now it's like, and I'm just recognizing that I have this 
anxiety in my life. I have this tiredness that sends me to bed at 10 o'clock. And the time that I used to be able to carve out sometimes when I needed to, I'm just not carving it out. So I know I've said this before, but it, it continues to be true. Somebody wrote me recently saying, hey, I sent you a share about there's no experts in Al-Anon. I thought it was going to be one of those quick turnaround things like it was the, the last time you asked for shares and you still haven't done it. And that was like, I don't know, a month and a half ago, because I remember where I had that inspiration. I was visiting my parents and that was back in August and now it's October. And I said, yeah, I, I, I have so much energy and I get things done when I can. I think it's important for me to recognize that. And it's important for me to titrate my energy to get the things that need to get done, done. My wife and I have different ideas about how we want to relate to our children. Sometimes she'll say, let's do this. And I'm like, I don't really feel like that's important. But I don't say that because she wants to have a particular experience. And I can't say, no, you shouldn't have that experience. My uncle, who I've spoken of a few times, one of the alcoholics that is a self-admitted alcoholic in my family tree, died last week. He did not die of alcoholism. He did find sobriety before the end of his life. And this is one of these difficult things because he had been in memory care for, I think, about a decade and so it's sad, but it's also sort of a relief, I think. Being able for me to hold those conflicting feelings and recognize that they're both true, to not tell myself we shouldn't feel relief that he's... The email I got from his wife, my aunt, said his trials are over, or he's reached the end of his trials, and I think... I could see that. It's sad to see this guy who was just brilliant, not able to really function in life anymore. And as you may be aware, my parents are going down that same road. And so I'm also projecting how am I going to feel when one of them reaches the end of that road? How am I going to feel before that? I'm so, so grateful that I've got the years of Al-Anon in that I do. The years of practicing acceptance of behavior that I don't like because, you know, it's a disease. Understanding that it's a disease and saying, I don't like this. I can't change it. And the memory aspect of dementia is is still triggering for me at times because there was the memory aspect of the act of drinking. And so if I, if I don't recognize that it, it can take me right back to that place, the person that I loved that I was living with, that I was sharing my life with, couldn't remember what we said five minutes ago. And now that's my parents. And I know it's different, but emotional triggers are not rational. But I can recognize that's where it's coming from. It's definitely not as bad as it was. And I think when it first started happening, I didn't recognize it. And it took me a while to figure out that was what was happening. But I am in this place where I don't want them to die, but I know that it will happen. And I kind of 
want it to happen before they get to a place where it doesn't feel like they're living. And that sounds maybe harsh. That all came up again this week with the news about my uncle. He was the person, I think, who first, outside of a treatment center, who mentioned Al-Anon to me. It was at least a couple of years before I came to Al-Anon. He was the first person to use the word detachment. He, he said something like, yeah, in Al-Anon, they tell you you should practice loving detachment. And, and my thought at that moment was, what the heck is that? But it stuck with me, and I finally did get to the program. Yeah, so that's a little bit about where I am. Which of you would like to uh, share a little bit about how recovery is working in your life? Well, I would say that my motto lately, maybe during this entire quarantine, is keep it simple. Of course, I like to add the other S song, keep it simple, stupid. I'm still overcomplicating things <laughs> in my life. And man, is life crazy right now with virtual schooling, two kids, and trying to work a full-time job. And I like to be involved in my kids' schooling as well. So the good thing is in going to my meetings lately, I've always made service a part of my life in Al-Anon. I remember very early in in going to meetings, I, I signed up to chair a meeting because I just wanted to dive in head first, you know. And so I've been the treasurer now for the past year for my home group and have regularly led meetings. And I feel like I've given back enough to where lately I'm so drained and tired that I'll just call in and listen. And just knowing that it's okay right now, you know, like maybe I can't share any experience, strength or hope right now, but I can listen and I can lean on these people and there's no judgment about it. They're not giving me a hard time or telling me I'm not pulling my own weight. So that's been my gift lately. And, and also keep it simple. I've been really trying to cut things out and really focus on priorities right now. What's really important. Thanks. How about Lynn? This year has been about easy does it for me. I have a strong will and uh, bent towards perfectionism, affecting it of myself and other people and just have to really slow that speed down, except that I'm not, even though I'm home more and uh, I can go to more meetings, doesn't necessarily, I'm going to be more productive because that's not the point. I have been thinking about what are some healthy ways that I can also get my needs met. And this kind of goes back to the co-parenting thing. I take really seriously that my kids have a larger family than just our little family unit. You know, I know that the three of us have a family unit, the three of them with their dad have a family unit together. We have our little blended family, but then outside of that, we took a COVID risk and traveled this summer to go see my closest friends who are really like my brothers and who are really uh, also like parental uncle figures for them. And we came home from that trip really feeling emotionally full. And I think they needed it. I think I needed it. And what I learned through co-parenting with an alcoholic is it's unfair for me to expect to get all my needs met from my partner. And so I have a long-term boyfriend now who is wonderful, but he can't be the only person I turn to just because we're quarantining together. I have to make time to do outreach calls, stay close to my program, do my own step work. I work with a couple of sponsees and this week I did a step one with one of them that was so powerful. You know, she, she couldn't believe that I would take the time to meet with her. And I really had to remind her that it was helping me as much as it was helping her to talk about powerlessness and that I could feel ourselves changing. You know, when I, when I take time to sit in program in a meeting, 
take, take one of those calls, make one of those calls. My day is better. And yes, it means I'm not maybe getting work done or the house could be getting cleaned, but letting that go. I'm knowing when to ask for help. If I'm feeling sad or if I'm feeling like I need some emotional support, I, I, you know, I have my mom, thank God. My dad died about a year and a half ago. And I have other paternal figures that I can reach out to, to get that kind of love and emotion. And and same with my mom. My mom is a, a wonderful person who can provide so much for me, but it's really important for me to not be so rigid and uptight about what I get out of that relationship or what I give her, you know, again, it goes back to diversity of thought, having diversity of inputs, it's like the water in the sea, really good to have a lot of that flow of energy from lots of different places. That's the primary part of my self-care is making sure that I've, I'm tapping into those, keep my well full. Tanya called in with a share about what her life is, is like in Elanon, what we're talking about here right now. So here's Tanya. Hi, Spencer. This is Tanya. I'm calling to share my reflections on the Elanon way of life. This is my ode to the joy, freedom, and opportunities Elanon has bestowed upon me. Since separating from my husband of 25 years, three years ago, and entering this program, I have focused inward to reacquaint myself with my passions and open up to new experiences and people. After years of striving and caretaking, I am relishing in being a human being, not a human doing. Turning off my incessantly thinking mind so that I can hear the quiet voice of my heart that I had bullied into submission. For many years, I had taken care of myself physically. Al-Anon taught me how to attend to my spiritual and emotional well-being as well. I've learned to listen to what's important to me and no longer worry about the shoulds or the whys of life. Those words have been eradicated from my vocabulary. Now I ask myself, why am I trying to think away a problem and not listen for a solution? In the past, I shoulded myself to death. Embracing what is now, each beautiful and painful moment is enabling me to love my life fully awake. I've ceased wasting my imagination on worrying. Now I go where it's warm. I effort less and I am in joy in myself. No longer am I my thoughts. I can change those as well as my beliefs. Not bound to any ideology I have choices. The only thing I must honor are my feelings. My strength has become flexible, more like a thin reed than a mighty oak. I am now capable of giving more to others because I am giving from a place of excess, not from my core. The more time and attention I lovingly bestow upon myself, the more I have for others. Funny how it multiplies instead of depletes. I've taken the tremendous amount of energy I used to expend on trying to control other people and now apply it to being my best self. Not to improve myself, rather to radically accept myself. These dramatic changes were precipitated by upheaval. Today, I am attempting to lean into my fear, know that I am taken care of, be grateful for my many blessings, and try to listen to and love those that are struggling. 
This is how I'm choosing to live, guided by the principles and love of this program. Thank you so much for letting me share. Thank you, Tanya, for sharing. And we also have a couple of shares from Alina, one about taking care of herself and and a two-parter about trust. Hi, my name is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode 89, which was about um, taking care of myself. This episode actually came at a good time because um, I'm dealing with my qualifiers relapse. And after him having 21 months clean, it's really hard. And I think I'm coping the best that I can. It's just like one day at a time. I've noticed that my feelings are up and down throughout the days. He's been four days clean now. And during that time, I didn't work out. And I try to work out like six days a week. It just really helps with my mindset and just when you feel good, you feel accomplished and stuff like that. But it was really hard. I wasn't isolating like I had in the past. So I was proud of myself for that. I did reach out to a newcomer. I've been talking to my Al-Anon friends and trying to be all that. Just been trying to do the best that I can, writing in my journal and listening to the podcasts and just my readings and stuff like that. So I'm back to working out again. And even though my qualifier seems to be going through his like depression and stuff like that, I try not to take on those codependent feelings. I just try to focus and concentrate on myself. And I know that I can have compassion for what he's going through and just love him for who he is. He's got to do it for himself and I got to do for myself. And I know that sometimes I get hard on myself about doing what I can for him being there, but then not really receiving anything back and feeling like I don't exist. And I know that's not his responsibility. That's just my weird thinking of how things are going. Anyways, I feel I'm eating again. I get loss of appetite when I like struggle with my feelings and stuff. So I'm eating again. I'm doing the best that I can. I feel like I'm back on track. So self-care definitely is important. And when you don't feel well, you got to take time for yourself. You can't push yourself as far as for myself. I can't do it. I know that sometimes I fall in that trap of I don't feel good or I'm tired, but I'm going to push myself. And I end up sometimes being grateful that I did, but other times feeling more exhausted. This program's taught me a lot about self-care, which I didn't really have before. I always did for others and was never wanting to say no. Now I realize that I need to take care of myself in order to take care of others. And I come first and I'm definitely um, worth having that. I'm just grateful for my peace of mind today and my serenity. So thank you. I just wanted to share on episode 91, which was on trust. I really like this topic. And I know that some of the questions that was asked in the overview was, are you afraid to trust others? Do you hesitate to share personal details? And are you trustworthy? I think for me, it's hard. I mean, I can be open to a certain extent to people around me, strangers, people that I don't know too well, like coworkers and stuff like that. I don't know necessarily that I'm afraid to trust others. Sometimes to me, when I share personal information with people, I really have to have that connection with someone. So it's not necessarily like trust. It's more just feeling comfortable. I think I'm really trustworthy. I know that when people share stuff about their personal life with me, I don't really gossip. I work with 
quite a few people and gossip can be something that comes up a lot and it makes me feel really uncomfortable and it kind of is a turn off to me when I see other people gossiping, especially about things that they don't know and taking other people's inventory. I just think it's really like a negative, hurtful thing and I get really uncomfortable and I just walk away or shut it down. I know everyone, at least I do, I feel like I'm not perfect. There are times where I may get frustrated with somebody and come home and talk to my husband about it or talk to a friend about it. For me, that's an outlet. I don't know if that's like a good thing to be doing. I don't try to indulge in it constantly. I don't really like drama either or conflict or confrontation. So it really makes me feel uncomfortable. But this topic is really good. I don't know if my trust issues came from my childhood. My dad was an alcoholic and I always wanted to please him. And I always felt like I had to be truthful. And I sought the truth from him all the time. I would ask him questions when I was little. And up until I was 12, we had a relationship and I was always walking on eggshells. I didn't want to hurt him, upset him, but I wanted to be perfect. I wanted him to be proud of me. Now that I think about it, I wonder if I was doing that just because I thought if he loved me more, he wouldn't drink. But I do know when he did drink, it made me extremely nervous. I guess as far as my higher power goes, I can trust my higher power. I didn't really have a focus on a higher power until I came into Al-Anon. So that's just recent, maybe the last six years. As far as trusting myself, I feel like I can trust myself the majority of the time. I know that if I can catch myself, that's always a good thing. I'm, like I said, I'm not perfect and I just have to focus on first things first when it comes down to it. I guess some of the other questions is what important things do I trust to my higher power? And I guess I, you know, trust him with my heart and to know what's right for me when I don't know what's, you know, good for me. And I know sometimes I don't always get what I want, but it's probably what I need. And also, what am I reluctant to give over to my higher power at this time? And I guess sometimes I feel upset with myself for having feelings when they're negative feelings. I would say when I'm sad or angry or when I'm not serene, I just feel like it's wrong and I need to like get over that. And I know I can trust him. I know that I can't take other people's inventory and I know he's not taking mine. Our trust is really hard. And I think that that's why right now, like when somebody lies to me or isn't open, I feel like I get super angry and I know where that comes from and I need to work on that. That's one of my number one things. I know that for me, when it comes to my husband or my qualifier, when I don't get open, honest, or when I get lied to, it's really hard for me to get over. And I feel like I seek things and I will have to catch myself because I'll be like, why aren't they doing this? Or why aren't they doing that? Because then I would feel better about it. I can't force. It just has to come. I like this topic. It was really a good one. Like I said, this is probably one of the top things that I struggle with is trust. Because to me, it's not that hard to be open and honest. And, and I just don't get why other people can't be that way. But I know that it's not for me to judge. And I'm only um, responsible for myself and what's in my hula hoop. So anyways, thank you and have a good day. Thank you, Alina. Upcoming, Eric and I, I think next week, trying to get back on a regular schedule here. We'll see how that works out. It really helps when somebody says they'll co-host because that keeps me accountable. We're going to talk about 
it's not exactly a slogan, but it's something he heard in a meeting. If I'm not the problem, there is no solution. And the question, if you would like to contribute, how has recovery let you see your part in problems? How does this help you to find a solution you can actually execute? We welcome your thoughts. You can join the conversation. And Lynn, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. And you can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at recovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope or your questions about today's topic of co-parenting with an alcoholic or any of our upcoming topics, including if I'm not the problem, there is no solution. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Lindsay, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Our website, therecovery.show, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, links to the books we read from, videos for the music we chose, and some links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. We will take a short break before diving into the mailbag. Our second musical selection available on the website is No Hard Feelings by the Avet Brothers. I picked this song because although it is about facing death and looking back without having resentments or hard feelings towards anyone or anything you've been touched by in your life, for me, it really, I could relate to it in regards to my co-parenting journey. I think my real goal is that when it's all said and done, and maybe parenting is really never over, but when my <laughs> children are out of the house and on their own independent journeys that I can really look back and and see that I did the best I could and that I lived a life without resentment and that I lived it with love towards my ex and, and my current husband as well. The lyrics are, and no hard feelings. Lord knows they haven't done much good for anyone. Kept me afraid and cold with so much to have and hold under the curving sky. I'm finally learning why it matters for me and you to say it and mean it too for life and its loveliness and all of its ugliness. Good as it's been to me, I have no enemies. Gotta wonder if they're in recovery, huh? We got an email from Monica who writes, Hi, Spencer. Thank you for your latest episode. I'm writing in response to the listener, Amanda, who wrote in asking if anyone else was pregnant or had been pregnant while living with an active alcoholic. I too was pregnant with a husband who was an active alcoholic, and I did not have any recovery in Al-Anon for myself at that time. It was an incredibly lonely and difficult time. My daughter is now 18 months, and I've been in Al-Anon for nine months, which has helped tremendously, even though there are still times that are difficult. Thank you for all the work you do. It is very much appreciated. I hope you had a good week, Monica. I definitely remember what it was like being pregnant and having this deep realization that I was entering into a situation that was going to be long lasting with somebody who had a problem with substances. And on the one hand, it was one of the most lonely moments I can imagine in my life being pregnant, nine months pregnant, thinking, what am I getting into and not knowing the way forward. But also it was um, a moment of deep resilience for me because I knew in my gut that at some point I would probably be raising this child by myself like I knew we were going to give it a real good go, but it was kind of a time for me to have a conversation with myself about you are going to be able to do this and it is going to be okay. And you might not have the skills that you need right now or think that you do, but they will come and change your life forever. And yes, it's scary. 
but you can do this. And so having that inner dialogue was really helpful. I wish I would have had Al-Anon at that time. I have heard some people feel shame about going into Al-Anon meetings while pregnant because of whatever story they think, you know, people are judgmental or whatever. You know, Al-Anon rooms are a really safe space. And I think that people are really happy when newcomers show up, no matter what state they're in. There's just a lot of help to be found out there. And the Recovery Show podcast is an amazing resource, but it's no substitute for actually participating in meetings. And there's listening, but also sharing, you know, being willing to open up. And even if the tears are flowing, it's okay to cry. Yeah, I would say for me that when I see a pregnant woman walk in the door, which has happened a few times, I feel so proud of her because, man, I wish I had had that too. I also felt a lot of fear. I would characterize it pretty much all as fear and loneliness. You know, wanting to be taken care of when you're pregnant, you have this innate desire to to be pampered, to be taken care of. And for me, I didn't realize because I had no recovery at the time that I could do a lot of that for myself. And so what ended up happening is, is I didn't do it and I had resentments. Man, if I could go back and do it over again, I would have spoiled myself like I wanted to be spoiled while I was pregnant because it's it's a beautiful time it's a magical time and it's very fleeting and I loved both of my pregnancies but it was absolutely hard feeling very alone feeling full of fear of what was to be also I can totally relate when with fear knowing that I was probably going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting when it came to the grunt work of parenting getting up in the middle of the night and dealing with all the kind of problems and crises that sometimes arise with parenting. So yeah, if I would say to any listeners that are pregnant, um, if if you feel called to come to a meeting, come to a meeting, because I guarantee you, you're going to find women there who are going to feel proud of you like I would, and you're going to get a lot of love and support and community. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks to both of you, because I certainly did not have that experience. (laughs) A listener has a question. Good afternoon. Do you have any podcasts on making the right decision with being engaged to someone who binge drinks on the weekend? I do believe he is an alcoholic. As I found out when he was a teenager, he was admitted to rehab. He was sober for 13 years. Then his wife cheated on him 16 years ago, which is when he started drinking again. When we first met 14 months ago, I didn't recognize the signs of an alcoholic as I had never lived with one. We were getting engaged this fall. One And once I started to see the emotional abuse and experiencing fear, I moved out six weeks ago. I have been recognizing my signs of being codependent and always apologizing to keep the peace. He says that he will change, but I've been lied to and manipulated so much that I don't know what to believe. If you have any help on making the right decisions and whether to just give up and walk away or wait to see signs of improvement from a distance, I would really appreciate it. Signed in his care. Yeah, I think I emailed back to this person and said, the right decision is the one that works for you, but that's very hard to know. I made the decision eventually after two years in Al-Anon to stay with my wife, but that it took me two years to, to really know that was the right decision. And I told that story in meetings and, and I had people say to me, I'm so glad that you said that because everybody else seems to be leaving and, and I'm not ready to leave. And so I was really happy to hear a story about somebody who's the right decision for that person was to stay. Um, but I understand that the right decision is not always to stay. Sometimes absolutely the right decision is to leave. And I remember one person 
when they were really in the program, I was leading uh, the beginners meeting that my, my home group at the time had. And this person was in, in exactly that position, being engaged to an alcoholic. And, and I just told my story. I think this was one of the people who said, thank you for that, because I needed to hear that story too. And a couple of years later, they got divorced. So who knows, right? I, I would say, come to meetings, spend the time to really know what you want and what you can live with and what you can live with without making yourself crazy. If you can do that before you make a decision, that's, that will probably work out better for you. I'm trying not to give advice here. <laughs> no, we're really good at, at trying not to give advice here. But I would say, you know, if you're feeling, if anyone's feeling a signs of abuse or fear, just pay attention to that and do what you need to do, whatever you need to do to protect your safety. You know, it goes back to what we were talking about right. earlier. My primary purpose as a parent is to make sure my kids are safe. And we all have a, a kid inside of us. You know, if you don't have kids, all of this still applies. What do I need to do to keep the inner child inside of me safe, comfortable, protected, and growing? And what environment do I need? The little girl inside of me, what do I need to make sure that I can flourish? And that's what love is. And those sources of love can come from, again, just not one person, not one partner, but your partner should be a person that uh, can help in the development of that little that child inside of you. Mm. Thanks, Lynn, for unpacking the how do you know if it's the right decision question. you have any thoughts, Lindsay? Yeah, I would just say that when I first started coming into the rooms, I was feeling very hopeless and didn't see any path forward for my husband and I to have a good, healthy, strong marriage. I thought this is a last-ditch effort. And again, for a long time, I thought this is me fixing him until I remember having that first meeting where I shared and I didn't talk about my qualifier at all. And I was like, oh, this is healing. I just talked about myself. But having those, those women and men who have stayed with our alcoholic partners and have had flourishing relationships they're just really joyful to be around. Like that gave me a lot of hope. And I recognized, okay, well, maybe if this is worth a shot, you know, maybe if I keep coming back, this is the path I could end up on. I can do with all certainty I have. Definitely for me for the first probably year and a half, it was very touch and go if I was going to stay in my marriage, but I'm glad I stuck it out and we're both doing well. And that just feels great. So I would say that um, if you're feeling hopeless, meetings aren't going to hurt. <laughs> and trying isn't going to hurt, you know, and when, for those people I, I know that have decided to leave, you know, they've all told me that you'll know when you know, you know, when you have more clarity. And if you don't have clarity, maybe you don't know yet. Yeah. Thanks. One last thing on that, if I could, I just want to confess that I dated quite a few alcoholics after I divorced my qualifier and it took <laughs> time to start to break that pattern. And I think it's, it can be easy to think, well, if this one person is no longer in my life, then I don't have a problem anymore. And then I, and then I also got to date a codependent and see what that was like. <laughs> that was, that really helped me in my recovery journey. <laughs> I'm working my way through my back email Got one from Barbara who wrote in response to another listener's question in episode 253 that was titled Denial and Acceptance. Hi, Spencer. I'm a new fan to the Recovery Show podcast. While I've been attending Al-Anon meetings for about two years, I feel like I've only recently become serious about my own recovery. Like so many before me, I came to Al-Anon when I was at my wit's end with my spouse, who was the main alcoholic in my life. I was looking for ways to fix him. 
I still remember the meeting leader greeting me and saying, you're in for a treat because this is about you. First, a little about me. I'm currently in quarantine with my spouse from whom I was separated for almost a year. I felt like I'd made so much progress and then via circumstances, we ended up together in the same house, just the two of us. He is still actively drinking along with a number of other behaviors that are difficult for me to take. As I've discovered over the course of the past several months, there is a reason my higher power put me here. One of those is that I've had daily opportunities to practice the Al-Anon principles and to confront what has been pretty serious denial on my part. Your podcast, daily reading, work from afar with my sponsor, and of course, Zoom Al-Anon meetings have been helping a great deal. I wanted to comment on an email you read toward the end of the episode from a listener who spoke of her husband's infidelity and asked for advice on how to deal with it. This is an issue I've dealt with, too, and it is not a topic I've heard discussed in any sort of detail in meetings. Before the podcast, I thought of this behavior as separate from alcoholism and therefore all about me. Because of this, the feelings of rejection and pain are enormous. It was so helpful to hear you and Pat, your co-host for the episode, say that this was part of alcoholic behavior and that this, along with other addictions, no matter what they are, are ways that we fill that God-shaped hole. This had never occurred to me before, and it was a huge relief to think of it this way. That meant, it's not me, not my fault, not anything I caused, and not something I can change. It has allowed me to start looking at this terrible heartbreak in a new way, and for that I am truly appreciative. I would say that it would be great to hear a podcast on this topic, because it is something that is so shame-provoking and is often not addressed directly in meetings. I would really look forward to hearing more about how others may be dealing with the issues expressed by the listener. Just the little bit that you covered was so helpful in shifting my thinking. Many thanks for all you do, Barbara. Thanks for writing, Barbara. And that does sound like it would be a good topic that would touch many people. I would put it out if you have had this in your life if you have had infidelity in your relationship with your alcoholic or addict and you're willing to talk about it on the podcast, please send me an email, feedback at therecovery.show, and we can arrange a conversation. We can keep you anonymous if that makes it easier for you to do it, certainly. Renee's email is titled Newcomer. Hi there. First, I want to say thank you for doing what you do. I found your show on my walks and searching podcasts. I'm very new to Al-Anon, so new my birthday or surrender date is August 27th. However, I've been searching for something that would work for me for months, but the current COVID situation has made it difficult. I almost gave up. On a show I listened to tonight, you spoke about someone who had recently lost their loved one due to alcoholism and encouraged anyone who is dealing with either a loss or fear of loss to call or write. Fear doesn't even begin to describe my daily emotions. My husband is an active alcoholic and getting worse as time passes. I deal with the typical behavior, sweet and the man I love when sober, but ugly and a different mean person when drunk. I hide it from family and make excuses for him, sometimes blaming myself, mostly due to judgment and criticism. The bipolar behavior became so bad and intolerable that I moved out and am currently only living with him part-time at the moment. The fear of loss comes from his health. A year and a half ago, he was diagnosed with alcoholic cirrhosis, and when he was diagnosed, he drank less than what he does now. Two years prior to his diagnosis, he had begun throwing up blood. He still does. He has varices and doesn't take his medication. 
The doctor explained to him that cirrhosis is serious, can't be reversed or cured, and he can be okay today and dead next month. None of that has caused him to stop. He cries and says he knows he needs to. He will quit cold turkey. He has withdrawals within hours of not drinking, usually the morning after. Against all advice, he does this. We'll go a few days at most, sick and can't work or function. Then he'll say, okay, just a little bit to get through the day. By the end of the day, he's down three pints of whiskey. Then it begins, three pints a day, every day. When I'm gone half the week, he's alone. When I can't reach him, I panic and worry something happened. When I go to bed at night, I worry tonight will be the night. Every day, I'm in constant fear that something is going to happen. He's got major complications to the cirrhosis, but thinks he's okay. He says it's not that bad. I ask myself, does he really not see the yellow in his eyes, the swollen feet? Does he really think the stomach issues are normal? I can't wrap my brain around how he doesn't really understand how serious this is. Then the resentment kicks me in the face. I resent him. I'm angry. We aren't married legally. We have been putting it off due to money. Now with COVID, we decided the court is fine, but I'm terrified something will happen to him before that happens and I won't be protected. Yet it hasn't happened yet due to his drinking. The resentment I feel is overwhelming. We've talked about it. He's aware. He just puts his head down and says he's sorry. I don't want to leave him. Quite the opposite. I just want to get to a place when I can enjoy him for whatever I have left with him. I've known this man since I was 10. I'm now 40. I know that who I see is not who he is. For over 15 years, we have loved each other, and I know why I love him so much. Fear, anger, resentment, confusion, loneliness, but worst of all, sadness. I'm struggling to find a place where I can become a part of without face-to-face meetings and getting what I need. I started attending church. He refuses AA, won't go to a program, and we can't afford a treatment center. I'm just feeling so hopeless. I'm thinking of going back to counseling just to try to help me deal with the sadness. I'm going to keep trying this Al-Anon and hope this new way of no real meetings and seeing real people will work, keeping an open mind. I need to. I know I just need help. I'm sure this is far too long already, but I could go on and on. Thank you so much for listening and encourage me to actually sit and get this out of my head, even though I'm not actually talking. I will definitely keep listening. Thank you so much. Sad and trying. Renee. Renee, my heart goes out to you. I remember still fairly vividly the time when my wife was still drinking, wanted to stop or said she wanted to stop. And I believe that she did, but somehow was not able to get there and how hard that was for me to, to just live with. You do talk about worrying and episode 119 about worrying might be helpful. But yeah, keep coming back, and I encourage you to at least attend meetings online. I know it's not the same as face-to-face, and I don't know where you live. I don't know when meetings in your area might start going back to in-person, but please keep coming. It will help you at least. Balin is another newcomer who is struggling with online meetings. Hello, Spencer. My name is Balin. I've been listening to the podcast since the beginning of the pandemic, and you can't imagine how much your podcast has helped me. My husband started drinking again after being sober for some time, and now I am living with an active alcoholic. I'm new to Al-Anon. I just joined my first Zoom meeting, and I don't want to lie, it was weird. I didn't like it that much. Maybe it was because it was on Zoom and the connection was bad. But I know Al-Anon is going to help me, so I will continue. 
I wish there could be an in-person meeting here in Los Angeles. I'm going to try one in Spanish, my first language. I've been listening to your podcast every day, and your podcast saved me after being so desperate when I found out that my husband was drinking again. Thanks to you, I found out about the book Courage to Change and also Paths to Recovery, and I'm working on step one. I just answered the questions, and I wish I had someone to share all that. I'm looking for a sponsor, but I don't know how to find it. It is very weird to find a sponsor through Zoom, but I guess that is what I have to do. I have a nine-year-old daughter and a two-year-old, so it is hard to find time for myself while helping my daughter with online learning and making sure my two-year-old doesn't interrupt his dad working from home. He is the one who works and pays the bills. I'm a stay-at-home mom for now. I'm always so mad at him, and it's so hard for me not to cry in front of my kids, and I know my nine-year-old knows everything. She shared her diary with me, and it's crazy how much she knows. She's very attached to her dad and worries about him. My husband is a good dad, and usually he is the fun, nice dad, and I'm the mean one, always mad. I need to find recovery. I know I'm not supposed to be mad, and his drinking shouldn't affect me, and I should detach with love, but how can I do it? I'm so mad and sad. We went through much, my husband and I and my daughter. After he went to a detox program in D.C., we moved from D.C. four years ago and continued his recovery in AA. My daughter and I also had therapy. My husband and I decided to move to Los Angeles. It was always my dream to move here because I'm an actor and I always wanted to come here and he got a job here, so we moved. It was good in the beginning to start from scratch in a new city without my parents-in-law and all my husband's friends and the bad memories, but I didn't continue with my recovery and life went on. And then we decided to have our second kid and we bought a condo here. Then my dad got very sick and he moved with us for a while to get treatment here in LA and he passed away two years ago. I've been very depressed and my husband was my rock, but he was also struggling with alcohol and I guess I didn't notice. Anyway, thank you so much for all your help and for helping so many families. God bless you. Balin O. Again, thank you for writing. Thank you for sharing your fears, your hopes. You say, I'm so mad. I know I'm not supposed to be mad. I just think feelings, you know, what you feel is what you feel. I suffered a lot from suppressing feelings, from pushing them down and then having them come out, mostly as anger, mostly as rage. Al-Anon gave me a place, and I suppose therapy could too, but Al-Anon gave me a place where I could start to express my feelings, where I could start to hear that I was not the only person who felt that way. And that gave me some some relief from feelings. And I think I said earlier in this episode that the first gift that Alan and I gave me was removal of my ragefulness. Detachment is, sometimes we say it's a black belt skill, but it's one that you can start to learn. I used to let go as my rock for a while. Detach with love. Sometimes I, I couldn't detach with love at the beginning. I could uh, detach with anger, uh, maybe detach with indifference, but detaching with love is hard. We have a couple of episodes about detachment. I can recommend episode 188, titled Detachment with Love. Episode 64, titled Detachment. Those might be helpful. We have a voicemail from Brian with a topic suggestion. Hello, my name is Brian, and I just wanted to connect with you, Spencer, and thank you so much for your show. I'm loving it. I just got introduced to it a week ago, and I've been listening to it quite a bit. I find it really helpful and insightful. I'm fairly new to Al-Anon. I just passed my one-year 
birthday in Al-Anon, and I've been finding it very helpful. One thing, I just listened to your show about men's in Al-Anon, men groups, and it got me thinking, and I searched your website, and I couldn't find any episodes concerning gay men or just queer people in Al-Anon. And the group that I go to is gay and lesbian, bi and transgender group. So it's very uh, queer friendly. And I just wondered if you ever did interviews or any shows on Al-Anon sobriety and the issues related to uh, queer people. If you have, I would love to know about them. And if you haven't, I would love to hear one and and get a sh- and see if you a show interview some people and the queer community. Just a thought. Love your show. Thank you so much for it. It's been incredibly helpful. Thank you, Brian. This is a topic that I would need your help with. If somebody would like to offer to share your experience, strength, and hope around this topic of queer-friendly meetings, LGBT meetings, and how that has supported your recovery, please email me, feedback at therecovery.show, and we can set up a time to talk. Paul writes, Hi, Spencer and Eric. I so love the episodes you co-host. I laugh a lot. I recently listened to the It's Not Your Fault episode, which was number 339. Man, growing up with an alcoholic and an alanonic mom, I thought it was all my fault. I know now through the gifts of Alanon that it was not, but I still have work to do around letting myself and others off the hook when blame is in the air. I'll take it from anyone, including myself. Today, I have a program which reminds me of my stinking thinking, and I can let go and let God. Thank you for your service with love, Paul. Thank you, Paul. I did share that with Eric. Pat left a voicemail with a recovery story. Hey, Spencer. This is Pat from the West Coast. I just called today to share a recovery story. I mean, some of it's kind of happy and some are good, and some of it's kind of sad. I was out walking with my husband this morning and made a comment on some news in the current news. And he made a comment, and so I made a comment back. And we had what I felt like was a really reasonable discussion. I didn't consider it negative. I did get a little excited, but I wasn't yelling or raising my voice or embarrassing him in public by being too loud. That bothers him a great deal. We went back and forth, and that's what I would want from my relationship with my spouse. Today happens to be the 12-year anniversary of our meeting. As we finished the walk, he said he didn't like arguing with me. He didn't like debating with me, and he just as soon as never had the conversation. And I understood that ultimately what really made me angry was that he doesn't want me to respond to things that he says, and I feel shut down when that happens. So she did end up getting angry. Oh, now you're angry. I'm angry because you're telling me that I can't respond to things that you say, and that really shuts me down, and it really changes the relationship. And this is actually something I've really wanted in our relationship for a long time. So I'd been in the house for a few minutes. He came down to apologize, and A little bit later, I came up and I said, you have asked for us not to have these conversations. You have asked not to discuss 
things that it upsets you and disturbs his serenity. So I need to honor that. And I do mean that. I need to honor that. And the other awareness that I had come to him to make amends, which is that I need to honor his discomfort with conversation on topics where we have differences of opinions, mostly around current events, but it can be any number of other things. The other thing I realized is for him, anything, my elevation at all, increased tone at all, equals debate, anger, dissent, distress, conflict, and he doesn't tolerate that. So I can accept those things, and I can accept that as a request that he's made. But the other thing is that I had to acknowledge there's some grief that goes with that. It makes me sad because we've had a few conversations around current events. The first couple were really were arguments and very emotional. And then after that, we'd had quite a few where I felt like they were good discourse and we were discussing things. And I value having conversations with him. It comes back to a lot of our traditions. I value his his insight and the different point of view. So there's some grief that I'm feeling today, too. Grief that this is not going to be part of my relationship with him. I may need to let this go. It's not the first time I've realized this. I think I had some hope that we had moved beyond that, but it's evident that's still the case. He hasn't changed, and so I'm going to need to find ways to do that. And ironically, I went to listen to the podcast I was listening to earlier in the week, and it was, Would You Rather Be Right or Happy? And it's so funny because you and Eric were just hitting exactly this situation. The difference being that when you're at your workplace, you're striving for something that's an agreed solution or agreed path forward with your coworkers. And mine, I'm just going to have to drop. But I love Eric's line, and I had thought of it on my own. It was great to hear it come out of his mouth, which is, I have some different thoughts on that. And Actually, that was another Al-Anon victory it was at the end of my amends. My husband brought the issue back up again, and I said, you know, we're bringing back the topic. I'm going to just drop it and walk away, and let's not get back into it. So it was a victory on some points. It was learning. It was certainly a lot of recovery that was super helpful, and it's just acknowledgement of a little bit of a little bit of grief. I'll just have to find my way forward. And thank you so very much for all you do. Thank you, Pat. Thank you for sharing about recovery from an argument, recovery from a disagreement. Always glad to hear from you. Marcy writes about It's Not Your Fault, episode 339. Hey, Spencer and Eric, thanks for the powerful topic, It's Not Your Fault. I'm very familiar with the movie Goodwill Hunting, but hadn't applied that scene to my life. However, accepting that it wasn't my fault was my foot in the door to Al-Anon and true recovery. I've been in another 12-step program for seven years, but never truly got recovery, at least not the kind I want, which is mental and emotional. I didn't think I was allowed to attend Al-Anon. I didn't think either of my parents were alcoholic, but I know with complete certainty both of my grandfathers were. One was a member of AA my entire life, and one drank my entire life. So both of my parents were raised by alcoholics, and I've come to understand my father was an alcoholic, but hid it very well. 
Realizing I qualified for Al-Anon was a start, but the true awakening was reading the literature and attending meetings and hearing my story. I am effed up, but it's okay, and it's not my fault. Best of all, there is a solution, and I don't have to continue to be effed up or feel bad. One day at a time, I am learning how to unfurl my emotional fists and stop punching at everyone. One day at a time, I am scraping off the muck and barbed wire around my heart. One day at a time, I am learning how to live. I'm learning that life is truly beautiful and I am here for a reason. I am not here to suffer and plod through each day. I'm here to love, to give, to experience serenity in my skin. Realizing I was sick and that it wasn't my fault changed everything. It healed a part of me I didn't know was broken. I am forever changed and I am thankful for that. Thanks for all you do for the recovery community. Thanks for the topic, Eric. Peace and love to all the listeners. Marcy. Marcy, that is a beautiful expression of how it is, as we say, what it was like, what happened, and what it is like now. And and that's a beautiful expression of what it is like now. Thank you. And Diane also writes about that same episode. Just listening to It's Not My Fault. I have two alcoholic sons. But while watching this episode, I realized my husband was an emotional blame addict. I took it and internalized it. We all, myself and my three sons, took on the responsibility for my husband's moody, abusive behavior. He died two years ago, and I'm still having issues dealing with his death. Wish I'd known about this episode before. Maybe we wish we'd done this episode before because we just did it a few weeks ago, but hey, glad it helped, and thanks for writing. Mark left a voicemail about the topic Irritable and Unreasonable, which is episode 336. Hi, Spencer and Eric. It's Mark. I'm sorry I missed the submission date for the Unreasonable and Irritable episode. Terrific, though. It really brought me back because I had that experience, too, when I first came to the program, that shock of recognition that, yeah, that's me. And I didn't, I hadn't realized it before I heard it in those meeting openings, that I would become irritable and unreasonable. And the thing that occurred to me listening to your episode was, that I was never comfortable in that state. I've met people who can be comfortable in conflict and are just battling and just fueled by that and can feed off it. But for me, that irritability and that unreasonableness would trigger this this kind of flight response. I would almost inevitably, whenever I would act out or say something, I would immediately withdraw and isolate. And if I was couldn't for some reason, I would dissemble or even be deceitful, anything to change the, the topic, because I could not stay in that that space of discomfort and, and conflict. And so years later, I'm in the program, and I become more aware of these things. And one of the ways that I gradually realized I had made progress is where before, when I would become irritable, that would be the reaction. I'd get the hell out of there, or I would change the subject by any means available. And it occurred to me that something had changed. You know, it's not that I didn't have those reactions. I didn't develop a higher tolerance for my own irritability. I just recognized suddenly that, no, I don't have to retreat and remove myself from a room or from someone's company just because I'm irritable. I could still react, but because I became more aware of this in the program, and I had before me the steps and all of this modeling and sharing about how to turn those negative thoughts and emotions into positive ones, I've been gradually gotten to the point when this happens to me, 
and I've become irritable and unreasonable, it's usually I'm backsliding on something, I can address it fairly quickly. And I don't have to, to get away from another person. I can stay and I can still be a part and still be connected with people. And it's all due to this program. And it is one of those things where I, I hadn't realized I had acquired at least that skill set. You know, for months or even a year, years later, I realized that this is one of the things that's changed. But again, I always appreciate the show and, and great to hear from you guys and I hope everyone as well. Thank you. Mark, thanks for sharing that. Even if you didn't make it in time for the episode, you're here now. A listener responds to episode 280, which was about S Anon. Hello, I'm so glad you had S Anon on the show. I became a member of Al-Anon because I needed a meeting so badly, and there was only one S Anon meeting in my area. It helps to have representation. At first, I used Al-Anon to substitute for S Anon, then realized I need both. I was raised in alcoholism, affected by sexaholics, and then married someone whose behavior severely affected me. My sponsor is out of Al-Anon. I do feel like both programs are my story, and there are pieces I can't share in Al-Anon. Thank you for your program. Signed, Woman in Phoenix. Thank you. We do like to reach out to other recovery programs that are related to Al-Anon at times. I've heard from a number of people who are grateful for that show. I'm grateful for Brian, who was willing to share with us his experience in Essendon. Roy sent some thanks. Hi, all. As a newcomer to the show, I would like to pass on my sincere thanks to all involved in the recovery show. It has brought so many positive insights to my journey to recovery and to others as I share the links and key points during our meetings here in Liverpool, England. I listened to a show that is pertinent to one of the daily readings while out on my daily walk. As you can guess, this is during lockdown. Lockdown has played a big part in my recovery and finding serenity as it has provided me time to reflect on the madness, not dwell on the past, but look at my part in the chaos over the past 10 years and how sick I had become. By listening to the shows, joining Zoom meetings across Europe and being able to share and listen to others' experiences, I have grown as a person and feel back in touch with my feelings. I am now able to smile properly and not worry that this won't last or this is just the calm before the storm as today is the only way to live. I was once told that the worst thing about being in recovery is that you get in touch with your feelings. And the best thing about being in recovery is that you get in touch with your feelings. I hope this mail finds you well, and please, please, please keep up the amazing work that you all do. Many thanks, Roy. And Roy, that is so true about being in touch with the feelings, both the best thing and the worst thing. Brian, a different Brian from the earlier one, has a topic idea. Hi, Spencer. I really love your show and have listened to many of the podcasts. It has proven to be a big part of my recovery. I recommend your show to many of my fellow al and a few people who are just working on codependent stuff. There is a topic that I haven't heard covered in your show. The topic is the confusion a partner or family member can have with an intermittent binge drinker. My experience with my loved one is that he can have periods of sobriety where everything is normal. He may drink a little here and there, and these periods can last for weeks at a time. Then unexpectedly, he will start a binge that can last a few days or a couple of weeks. Then he sobers up again. I have found this pattern very confusing. I know that he is an alcoholic, but during those sober times, I start to doubt myself until a binge happens again. Each time he starts drinking again, I get surprised. It's like I get duped into denial. As I work my program, these surprises are less and less dramatic, but they still can be disorienting. I decided early in my recovery that I don't have to figure out if he is, for lack of a better word, a full-fledged alcoholic. 
I just need to focus on my reactions and my sobriety. But this off-again, on-again drinking is very confusing. I'm grateful for the sober times, and fortunately I have learned a lot about moving through the drunk times with much more peace and surrender thanks to the program. I know this may sound crazy to some, but sometimes I wonder if he was one of those people who was drunk every day, somehow it would be easier. I would know what to expect. Also, I wonder if he would hit bottom sooner and go into recovery. The cycle of sobriety and binging seems to create its own unique set of issues for family members. If there is a show that specifically addresses how others handle this, please point me to it. If not, I would love to help out in any way to make that happen. Thanks for all your shows. It's like I have a meeting available to me at all times. Brian. I didn't have exactly that experience, Brian, but I did have the experience of my wife being able to stop drinking for a period of time, but then going back to it. When I turned 50, we took a vacation to California to visit my brother, go to Disneyland, all that fun stuff with the kids, play on the beach. She decided not to drink for the week. And I was like, well, if you can decide not to drink for the week, can't you decide just not to drink? And at the end of the week, we were at the airport and she said, I'm sorry, the airplane is my flying bar and I'm going to drink. And I just was like, why does this happen? How does this happen? It was very confusing, as you say. And there were a couple other times when she stopped for a while and then went right back. I don't understand it. It's cunning, baffling, and powerful, as they say in AA. If your loved one is a binge drinker, exhibits this sort of pattern, and you'd like to share your experience, strength, and hope, please email, send me a voicemail, record a voice share, and email it to me, feedback at therecovery.show, and maybe we can put together an episode on it. Thanks. Okay. Lynn, you got another song you picked. Our last song selection is Falling Water by Maggie Rogers, which you can listen to at therecovery.show slash 342. I love any songs about water because a lot of my recovery metaphors involve water. And this one, I think also <laughs> speaks to like when I think that I'm more powerful than water. So here's a lyric. Hold on. I thought that I was doing so well. Oh, like everything was under a spell and now it's getting harder. I never loved you fully in the way I could. I fought the current running just the way you would. And now I'm in the creek and it's getting harder. I'm like falling water. I think this line about, I never loved you fully in the way that I could. I only knew conditional love before I got into Al-Anon. I thought I could move the boulders and move the flow of the river in the way that I thought was the way it should go. Now I have learned how to love my qualifiers for who they are, while also having boundaries and enough wisdom to know when it's time to let go and just be in that flow. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.